You're listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Glycemic Control in T2DM, Opportunities and Challenges, is provided in partnership with Prova Education and is supported by an independent educational grant from Novo Nordisk, Inc. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here's your faculty, Dr. John E. Anderson and Dr. Vivian Fonseca. Unfortunately, almost half of all patients with type 2 diabetes, or T2DM, do not achieve optimal glycemic control. Not only that, but cardiovascular events and being overweight or obese is associated with the risk for type 2 diabetes and can correlate with poor outcomes. So how can we use the available treatment options to our advantage to overcome these common challenges facing our diabetic patients? This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. John E. Anderson. Joining me today to discuss glycemic control in this discussion is Dr. Vivian Fonseca. Vivian, thanks for being here today. It's a pleasure, John. Good to be working with you. Great. So to set the stage for our audience, Vivian, what are the macro and microvascular morbidities associated with poorly controlled hyperglycemia, especially related to poor cardiovascular outcomes? And when does treatment intensification come into play? So let me actually start with microvascular complications because those are the ones that are very closely and directly linked to hypoglycemia. You don't get microvascular disease if you don't have diabetes and don't have hypoglycemia. And the main ones are diabetic retinopathy, diabetic neuropathy, and diabetic nephropathy. They're all sort of interconnected in some ways. Maybe retinopathy is a little different. It it is the leading cause of blindness, particularly proliferative retinopathy with bleeding. But you can also get macular edema. And in the eye, there's also more cataracts. Diabetic neuropathy contributes to amputations, a lot of pain in many patients, numbness, and can cause autonomic neuropathy, which is associated with mortality. And diabetic nephropathy initially is manifest as proteinuria, but then progressive renal disease, renal failure, and is the leading cause of end-stage renal failure leading to dialysis. Many patients have all three complications together. And in, all of these are, in a way, linked with the macrovascular complications. Now, the major macrovascular complications are heart disease, ischemic heart disease like myocardial infarction or angina, or congestive heart failure as well as stroke and peripheral vascular disease, essentially atherosclerosis. But there is an increase in non-atherosclerotic congestive heart failure as well in people with uncontrolled diabetes. Now, in terms of intensification of treatment, the best option is really prevention of these complications. And if you intensify treatment very early in the natural history of the disease, people will never get complications. You could intensify later, even after complications occur, and it will decrease the progression rate. But some people, particularly with type 2 diabetes in the late stages when they have multiple complications, don't do very well with intensification as we saw in the ACCORD trial. But in many other trials, people have not done that badly. So there's always room for improvement in glycemic control. So Dr. Anderson, now it's your turn. Thinking about your own practice, what are the common patient barriers to achieving treatment intensification? Yeah, that's a great question, Vivian, and it's sort of complex because I'm in a primary care setting, and as you know, we're taking care of all kinds of diseases. So I think the first thing I, I do and I have my nurses do when the patient's checking in is, are you taking your medicines? I mean, this issue of non-adherence really rises up, especially when you have complex regimens for diabetes. 
I mean, cost is always an issue. I just had a patient come in the other day. He's a nurse. He knows better. His A1C was near 10, but just because the third-party mail order prescription service didn't send his GLP-1 receptor agonist in, he just stopped taking it. And then he got off of his SLP-2 inhibitor. So this is someone who really understands medicine but doesn't understand how complicated his disease is and how much worse it's going to get, like you said, for complications with this non-adherence. Sometimes it's the complexity of the treatment regimen, right? Especially when patients are doing multiple daily injections, they're taking many medicines, or they have a lot of comorbidities, so they're taking medicines for other conditions as well. I think you run into things like poor health literacy and that type of thing, and then there's patients' barriers in terms of just overall support from family. There's psychological barriers. I deal with a lot of depression and diabetes, and you know, if you ever hear Mark Perot, who's published a lot on diabetes distress, it really affects patients' ability to stay with their regimen. And then sometimes we have, you know, the injection phobia, but you and I've talked about this before. The injection phobia, if you can really show them the size of, of the needle you're talking about and demonstrate that to them, you can overcome a lot of that. Continuing on the topic of patient management, what physician factors form the basis of this so-called clinical inertia that leads to lack of intensification of therapy that we often see in management of type 2 diabetes? It's a great question. I think there's clinical inertia, Vivian, at the physician provider level. I think there's clinical inertia at the patient level. I think it's what you said. You know, we don't need to be taking forever to get our patients to goal. You know, set whatever A1C goal you have and achieve it. And that frequently may mean using combination therapies early. You know, for a long time, we did this treatment to failure. You know, you get a patient barely down to goal. They come back up, you treat barely to goal. I mean, if you're using combination medicine, much like we do in hypertension and depression, get the patient to goal and keep them there. And some of the newer agents, I think, help us do that. You know, a lot of times we have these patients, well, Dr. Anderson, I don't want to have another medicine. Give me three more months. Just give me three more months. I'll start that exercise regimen. And then, of course, they come back in four or six months, not three months. And so there's always this back-and-forth negotiation. One of the techniques I use if I really need to get a patient to go, I said, look, I'm going to put you on this medication. We're going to get you down to goal. If you come back in three to four months and you've achieved those goals you've set out to do with lifestyle changes, then I'll be happy to be the first person to take you off the medicine. But I think there's been plenty of clinical trials that show we're waiting way too long to intensify both on oral agents as well as injectable agents. For those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Vivian Fonseca. And with me today is Dr. John Anderson. Together, we're discussing glycemic control in our patients with type 2 diabetes. So, Dr. Anderson, with all the treatment options available, which therapeutic agents have been shown to have clinical efficacy in improving cardiovascular outcomes in patients with poorly controlled hypoglycemia? And what are the mechanisms of action? You know, it's a great question, Vivian, because we have now two classes of medicine the SLP2 inhibitors, which work through the kidney, and GLP-1 receptor agonists, which work through the incretin system of the gut. And not only have they shown good efficacy in A1C lowering, usually without hypoglycemia, most with some weight reduction, some systolic blood pressure reduction in terms of the SLP2 inhibitors, but now we're learning there is a benefit in reduction of cardiovascular risk in our patients with type 2 diabetes. In 2008, the FDA mandated that all new diabetes drugs go through cardiovascular outcome safety trials. And so all of these newer agents have proven safe, but we have seen that some of these agents in particular have shown statistical superiority versus what we would call usual care in patients with type 2 diabetes. So 
just looking at SGLT2 inhibitors, canagliflozin in the Canvas and Canvas R program, empagliflozin in the Empareg program. Dapagliflozin recently had a reduction in that co-primary endpoint of cardiovascular death and hospitalization for heart failure. The Virtus CV with ertugliflozin is pending for next year. And then we look at the GLP-1 receptor agonist. Liraglutide in the LEADER trial had a reduction in that three-point MACE. That's the major adverse cardiovascular events. Harmony with albaglutide reported last year had a 20% reduction in cardiovascular events with three-point MACE. And then more recently in June, Rewind, which was dulaglutide, had a reduction in three-point MACE. And this was with a almost 70% primary cohort. In other words, these patients didn't even have cardiovascular disease. And then there's been sustained six in Pioneer with semaglutide, both injectable and oral, but while not powered as many patients and for as long, also showed reductions in cardiovascular outcomes. So, Vivian, really, we're dealing now with cardiovascular drugs that also are antihyperglycemic drugs. And I don't think many of us ever thought we would see that day. Sure. And with regard to mechanism, we don't fully understand the mechanisms. There are multiple mechanisms involved in these effects that are beyond glucose control. So for equal glucose control, some drugs give you added benefits. But we, we need to be a little bit more precise in our choice of these. And the guidelines are moving in that direction. You know, it is interesting, Vivian. We can talk about the way an SGLP2 inhibitor works in terms of lowering glucose. We can talk about GLP-1 receptor agonists and how there's a beta cell function, a suppression of glucagon, a slowing of gastric emptying, a central nervous system effect, but you're right. I think most of what we understand about the cardiovascular risk reduction is theoretical, and it may be more than one mechanism of action. It may be several mechanisms of action, and we may spend the next several years figuring that out. Sure. So let's think about what are summarize our take-home messages today. I think, firstly, complications are preventable. The microvascular complications are clearly linked with hypoglycemia, and if you intensify treatment early, you can reduce or even prevent development of microvascular complications. And macrovascular complications are a little bit more complex. They are multifactorial. We need to address the lipids and blood pressure. But now we have glucose-lowering drugs that also decrease macrovascular complications in different ways and with different effects on outcomes which allows us to sort of tailor therapy to the patient. We're moving more and more to what we would call precision medicine and precision treatment in the management of diabetes. You know, I absolutely agree. And everyone that sits in our exam rooms that we talk to is an individual. And we need to be thinking about all their comorbidities, what they have going on in their lives, how we're going to tailor their treatment to their individual case of diabetes. And Vivian, that's a great way to round out the discussion. I want to thank you for helping us better understand glycemic control in type 2 diabetes. Thank you for your valuable input as well, John. This activity has been provided in partnership with Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation by visiting reachmd.com Prova. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.